Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. Today on Let Me Be Frank, we're talking about two of the most beloved saints the church has ever seen, St. Therese of Lisieux and St. Francis of Assisi. And Bishop Frank answers a listener question about lying. First, I just want to thank you for helping us make our very first pledge drive, which was last week, a tremendous success. I know you tune in to hear great shows like Call to Communion, Al Cresta, Take Two, and Catholic Answers, but to keep those shows and this one, let me be frank, on the air, we need to do these five-day pledge drives a couple times a year. Now, we're back to normal programming, so please be sure to tell your friends you know to tune in. The more folks listen, the more they'll learn, the more they'll be able to help their families and their community and the church. All right, so here we go. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. It's my pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Good to see you, Steve. Nice to see you, Excellency. Um, Excellency, earlier this month, we celebrated the feast days of two of the very most popular saints that I can think of, St. Therese mm-hmm. of Lisieux and St. Francis of Assisi. And um, so today we will talk about them and why you think they're so popular. Oh my so, gosh, a, a, a ton of reasons. There's a ton yeah. of reasons. And there's actually great similarity between them, which, you know, when I researched a bit, uh, really struck me. So even though there's 700 years separating them, there's something quite e- e- uh, eternal and enduring in both their examples, right? Once you dig under the surface. So who do we start with? Let's start with St. Francis. I'm biased. We'll start with St. Francis. <laughs> Well, he's your namesake, so he's Francesco. Yep. You know, to understand Francis, Steve, you really do have to contextualize him, put him in the period where he lived, because in many ways, the genius, the religious genius that he was, was in response to the needs of the people of the time, right? Mm. So he was born in 1181 or two and died in 1226. So the end of the 12th and the beginning of the 13th century. And one of the things we need to remember is religious life at that time was monastic. The Cistercians were growing, right? So religious life was cut off from ordinary people. It was behind walls in monasteries that people knew about, but they didn't actually see, right? See, Francis would respond to that like St. Dominic did and form religious life that was mendicant, Right, that walked among the people, literally begged among the people, but the sign of holiness was in their midst, which is a significant change and extremely important as leaven for the largest society, right? That's one. The other is, we consider Europe now, well, in a post-Christian world, at once it was a Christian continent, but in this time, Islam was advancing, particularly in Spain, Right? So there was a growing sense of uneasiness, at least in some quarters of Europe, and a sense that some of this was happening because people had fallen off in their faith and they needed to return back to purity of faith and seriousness of faith. Again, so Francis's extreme poverty and his extreme simplicity resonated with people as a model to strive after, right? Mm-hmm. And the other thing, too, is, I mean, most of the world at this time was rural, was not urban. So when Francis talks about nature and the animals and the sun and the moon and the stars, that resonated with people, right? I mean, that's how they governed their lives. Yeah. They went to bed when it got dark. They got up when the sun rose, no matter what. I mean, so again, he was in the midst of the people and his spirituality resonated with ordinary life of most people who were rural, vast majority, okay? Mm-hmm. So, so the, one of the keys to Francis is that he responded to the felt needs of the church at the time, even though it's a personal odyssey of faith. So he was in the right man, in the right context, right? And the other thing is Assisi itself. Have you ever been to Assisi? Yes, so beautiful. What was your, what was your, yeah, what was your, what was your experience? 
It was, I mean, there were a lot of tourists there, but it's still so peaceful. I mean, for me, just to be able to walk the streets, touch the stones that Francis walked on and touched. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's I, you know, the picture that you're painting, I can see it's remote. It would mm-hmm. be, you know, maybe out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, see, for Francis, Assisi also helped form him because of, of the beauty of the, both the place and the serenity of it and of the surrounding land. So if you remember Assisi, you could look out into the valley and it was just, it's something you would paint on a canvas. Yeah. And Francis walked all that area. I mean, he didn't, tra- he traveled obviously to Egypt, which we could talk about, but generally speaking, most of his life was in those mountains, in those hills. And there's a beauty, I'll tell you a quick story. When I, the first time I went to Assisi, I went because a friend of mine had come to Italy and we went for a day trip. I was living in Rome at the time. It was my first time to Assisi. And we went up by train and we met and we, you know, we kind of did the pilgrim slash tourist day things to do. Went to St. Clair, went to the Basilica. However, there was a moment that I will never forget. It was about 6.15, more or less, in the early evening. And we were coming out of the great basilica upstairs, the Duomo, in the Piazza di San Francesco. And as I walked out of the basilica to see the power of the place, it, I was just literally stopped in my tracks. For the sky was a growing deep blue, for the sun was setting. And the moon had just had the faintest lines of appearing. It was cool, but there wasn't a breeze to be had. There was a stillness, because most of the tourists had gone to eat. I thought to myself, this is Francis. This, the simplicity, the serenity, the the, the rapport with the world around him, this was, I tasted just 10 seconds of what Francis lived his whole life. It was just mesmerizing. Honestly, it was mesmerizing. So, right context, right place, and right man. There you go, recipe, okay? You know, some things about Francis. Oh, I could talk about Francis for days. He lived to only 43, 44 years old. So he died a relatively young man. But he was canonized two years after his death. Wow. Right. So remember when John Paul was buried and the crowd would cry out, Santo Subito. You could imagine the upswell uh, among the ordinary people who knew Francis. Yes. Who, you know, by acclamation would say, this man, if this man's not a saint, we're all doomed. (laughs) But it's extraordinary, right? Patron of Italy, patron of animals, patron of ecology, which, you know, we can talk about. Pope Francis took his name in part for that. But the other things that are fascinating about his life, let me just mention three, and then you may have questions, but Francis had a tremendous love of the Eucharist. Hmm. Great devotion to the Eucharist although he thought himself unworthy to receive it. And there are some traditions that hold that Francis only received a few times, as little as three times in his whole life, the Eucharist, because he did not believe he was worthy. Now, let's think about that for a second, right? In my life, that's kind of sobering, right? Yeah. He was the great inventor of the creche, Right, he was the first to do that. Why, why? What do you think? It was it just for Christmas? Just for the sake of the of Christmas? Because there were themes there that resonated with Francis's heart. First and foremost, the radical poverty and humility of God, which we will see 
in St. Teresa's life with the two mm. titles she takes of the child Jesus and the Holy Face, right? It's the radical humility and simplicity, um, the emptying of God, the Son of God in the manger. That resonated. The three kings who were not believers initially. Francis would travel to the east to try to convert and make peace with the nations that were not believers. See, that would resonate in his heart. Okay. He had a great devotion to angels. And of course, they figure prominently in the crush. And it was at the hands of a vision of the angels that he received the stigmata two years before he died. Which itself, you know, people say, what a great honor. I'm not sure it's a great honor. I think for Francis, it was a great suffering. He bore the pains of the passion. Right. O only, the, only the most generous and those who are most selfless in life can bear that. And he did. So it's just remarkable. I, I don't know. I, there's no other word I could describe this man. <laughs> it's remarkable. Yeah, I, I get, uh, Francis is so, like you said, he's remarkable. And I get a little um, annoyed, it might be too strong a word, but, you know, because of his love for the animals, nature, mm -hmm. his compassion mm -hmm. and humility, you know, mm -hmm. um, people like to portray Francis as like this mushy hippie who kind of, you know, prances through the fields. But he was a soldier, he was strong, he was a man's man. I mean, we all try to make things in our own image since Adam and Eve. <laughs> so oftentimes you, put, you, you project onto others what you would like them to be because it oftentimes just justifies what you want to be, right? Yeah. But prescinding from the judgment, okay, which is probably added now to my time in purgatory, point <laughs> is, okay, you are absolutely correct. He was the son of a merchant. His, his mother was a noblewoman and French. His father called him Francis in part, Francesco, because he liked all things French. Okay? Uh, he, lo he loved troubadours, he loved the easy life, he loved, liked the good life, he loved a good party. Okay, so he could party on with anybody of his age. But there was something in Francis that wanted more. And the interesting thing is, do you remember that story in his early life when he first encountered a beggar? Yes. Right? And he gave the beggar everything he had and was tormented by his friends and his father. Right. Right? But he got a great sense of peace there, a great sense of fulfillment that the troubadour, the parties, the rich life, the son of the merchant, didn't give to him. So it, it whet his appetite for more. And what's interesting, in, in my mind at least, just like Ignatius came to conversion, right? When he became sick, so Francis too fell ill and began to go deeper into this alternative so the sports and all the rest and the feast were not as attractive after coming out of that illness. And when he went to Rome, he, he begged. Now, this is the son of a merchant. Can you imagine his father? What his, father must, his father must have been ready to tie him up. Right. He begged. He begged. Right? And then there was the famous San Damiano. You know the story, San Damiano, no? All right, tell us the story, Steve. So I guess he was in that uh, the broken down church there in San Damiano, praying before that that crucifix, and mm -hmm. he saw Jesus uh, on the crucifix. The eyes looked at him, and said, "Francis, repair my house, which you see falling into ruins." And he thought it was he thought Jesus literally meant that church. So he started picking up the stones and and fixing, and he fixed that church. Jesus had, had bigger plans for him. Yeah, that's very well said. I think, and again, we would like to think that Francis, that time was a diversion from what the Lord wanted him to do. 
But in fact, that which he did was necessary in order for him to do what he needed to do. So allow me to be a little poetic. He had to get his hands dirty, literally dirty. He had to do manual labor. So this son of a merchant, this son of a, you know, living a good life for a while, had to live the life that the people around him, the living stones, lived. So it's almost, the, the physical rebuilding of San Damiano was almost like going to tutorial. For when the revelation came to build the church, living stones, spiritual stones, Francis understood what that really meant because he understood what the life of that spiritual stone was like. Mm. So it was only after that when his father blew a gasket, really, and denounced his son that he renounced all of his patrimony, renounced everything. And some, some traditions hold he even stripped himself naked and the bishop had to put something over him because he's standing right. in a CZ naked. Yeah. Right? right? It's typical. But, <laughs> but, but I think Francis could renounce everything having spent that time in the dirt, breaking the stones, rebuilding the church. That was, that was his tutorial period. Yeah. Right. You've often heard me say there are no, there, we should avoid false choices. Right. So that would have been a false choice to say that was a waste and this is what, no, 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 this was the work and that was the work too. This had right. to come first, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even that story of him stripping naked uh, in the piazza, that's, even if it weren't true, um, it's it's uh, it's representative of the radical way he followed Christ uh, once once he had his conversion or reversion or strengthening. Right, right, and uh, oh, I I have no doubt it's true, <laughs> no doubt, no doubt at all. And the only thing I say that is not because I want to believe you know what seems to be you know such a radical behavior. But it's so consonant with Francis. Yeah. I mean, so what does he care standing there naked? When we're dead, right. we're all going to know everything anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. He, he, it was just a, because Christ was stripped too. Mm hmm. And we sometimes depict, you know, most of the time, we depict Christ on the crucifix as, as having a loincloth. But I think I'm not sure that's historically correct. And we would never depict a cross with Jesus completely naked, but the Romans humiliated their victims, yeah. humiliated them, right? Yeah. So it is not, it, it would not be inconceivable that Francis would have even stripped himself naked because he believed that was what happened to the Lord yeah. at the time of his passion. Yeah. But embarrassment would have been farthest from his mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there are um, stories that, you know, uh, like the story of the wolf that he, mm -hmm. he prevented from uh, continuing to uh, mm -hmm. attack the townspeople and the story mm -hmm. of the Pope approving the Franciscan order after he had a vision of Francis holding up the Basilica of St. John of Lateran. St. John Lateran. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nothing's impossible with God, so... Absolutely. And now it's interesting now. So uh, the, the earliest supporters of Francis, even in Rome, thought that he was a bit much hmm. and thought his rule was just impractical, unsafe, literally to have no money, literally to beg for your food every day. Um, but soon enough, he prevailed. And of course, some of it gave way when the, the order finally got papal recognition, a rule that was approved by the Pope that became large. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I, there are some sources that say there were four or 5,000 followers of Francis before Francis died. It's amazing. And he sensed that there was two camps growing, the one that was much the strict traditionalists and the others that were more accommodating. And so when Francis died, of course, the Franciscans fell into disunity, right? Which is not 
uncommon. Mm. It's not uncommon. The other thing we need to remember is for the church, um, when the mendicant, mendicant orders, uh, orders arose, the initial fervor attracted many people. But some who were attracted in later generations were more lukewarm in there, so they made many more accommodations. Then eventually it became almost fashionable to enter into religious life, so nobility wanted to go into it. Hmm. So there's always going to be that tension. And therefore, um, but Francis, I wonder to myself, and of course no one would know this until we have the privilege, please God, to meet Francis, whether he sensed that the order was going to go into this discord after his death. He must have sensed it. Yeah. Right? But you can't impart fervor. You have to, you have to desire it, right, in your yeah. life. In the end, one of the great gifts of Francis, because of his love of the Eucharist, was penance, a penitential spirit. Mm -hmm. And therefore, penance is that which is going to allow your lukewarmness to become fervor again. Right. Otherwise, you slip back into lukewarmness. Mm -hmm. Then the St. Clair. Right? Yeah. And Claire, right, befriended Francis, followed his way. Francis set up what he called first the Order of Poor Ladies and then the Poor Claires. And only until recently, Claire was so incorrupt that you could actually look upon her own face. And now I think there's a, a wax mask because mm. she is dead, what, 700 years? Yeah. Remarkable. I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea that uh, Francis and Dominic might have met each other in Rome. What, what a meeting. Like? <laughs> yeah. What a meeting was that have been. Right. Right. And two great founders, right, of mendicant orders. And what's interesting in, doesn't tradition hold? It would almost be funny. <laughs> I could imagine this. Dominic saying, we're going to go out and preach the gospel. And Francis' response is, yes, we're going to preach the gospel and not use words. It's almost as if the two of them are complimenting each other. Right. Yeah. It, right? I like that. And out, of the, and out of the Dominicans came St. Thomas. Yes. Right? Aquinas. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Right? I mean, so many so, great saints from both, from both orders. Right. And, and so they show the two sides of preaching. Yes. With words, an example. Without words, an example. And how you need both. Fascinating. Yeah. Before we go to the break... Uh, and talk about St. Therese on the other side, I want to ask you, um, you know, 800 years later, 700 years later, in 21st century America, what are some of the most important lessons that we today should take away, and then how can we apply those things practically? Okay, you know, it's funny. Um, we talk about our carbon footprint. We talk about trampling through the world in which we live. Uh, Francis was 800 years ahead of all of us. Um, one of the lessons of Francis is stewardship, true stewardship. Of all the gifts God has given us, right? we are stewards of them. We are to use them for the good of those around us. We are not to trample them. We're not to abuse them. We're not to take advantage of them. In a materialistic world, that has a long way to go. If we're really serious about protecting creation, the whole premise of which our society is structured has to be re-examined, which is consumption and materialism. So the first one for Francis, he's the great steward. Second, he's simple. Not simple in the sense of, you know, unable to process or, no, he's simple, he's detached. Right. Not only is he a good steward, he's detached. He knows what's important to everything else. Now, honestly, who among us drowning in everything we have and all the things we do, how often do we fall flat on our face determining what's really important? And who can really give up everything else? Francis did. So that simplicity. Right? Yeah. And I would say one other lesson too, and the lesson is uh, trust. Yeah. Trust. 
See, we live in a world now where we could manipulate everything about us. And that gives us a sense of distorted pride and dominion. And Francis literally begging every day, was trusting every day that he would make it through the day. And I think we yeah. need, as modern people, to rediscover that trust too. Yeah. So I think he has tremendous lessons, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks, Excellency. Let's, uh, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, like we said, we'll talk about another great saint, St. Therese of Lisieux. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Okay, welcome back everybody to Let Me Be Frank. Uh, we're talking about two great and very popular saints today. And we just finished St. Francis of Assisi and we're gonna go to uh, someone who lived 700 years later, um, mm-hmm. St. Therese of Lisieux. Excellency. Lived almost half, half the age of Francis. She only lived to 24. Yeah. Now let's consider for a moment. A young girl becomes a young lady lives to 24. She's in the Carmel how many years? Eight? Just about? Seven? Mm-hmm. And she, she's a doctor of the church. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we talk about the power. This is my first point, off the bat. We talk about the ability of young people and young adults to contribute to the life of the church. Well, here is your patron saint. Mm-hmm. Right? And she didn't have to conquer the world. She didn't have to go out of the four walls of her convent and look at what she has accomplished. A discalced Carmelite nun. Mm-hmm. So one may say, well, how does she do this? Well, again, like Francis, let's take a larger context. Right? France, in the 19th century was a mess, a complete mess. Politically a mess, republics, empires, people, kings coming and going, and the thread that outlines all of it was the slow diminishment of the church in France. Partially by attack from the state and partially simply because um, the religious fervor um, was deeply affected by the turmoil and the attacks on the church. So it's not surprising that God in the quietest of all places, in the littlest of all ways, would raise up saints that mm-hmm. would, like Joan of Arc, like St. Therese, that would inspire people, or women that would inspire a whole nation. If I were to ask you, Steve, where do you see similarities between St. Therese and Francis? I, in, I hinted at that at the beginning of our show. I'm, pu- I'm going to put you out on the limb. I won't soil it off, but what, wh- where do you see similarities? Do you see any similarities? Oh, gosh. You're putting me on the spot. Um... I am. I am. That's why you get the big bucks here. <laughs> <laughs> uh well, I could tell you, Excellency, but I wouldn't want to give you the answer. <laughs> oh, there you go, Steve. Good for you. <laughs> Your humility, you're up there. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, I'm, uh, uh, this is from my perspective. There's no right or wrong answer, but I think, wouldn't you say, wouldn't you say, would you agree, Therese, you could not get any more simple yeah. and detached? Right. Right? Yep. In fact, her entire spiritual odyssey was detach herself from the desire or the expectation she was going to do monumental things and earth-shattering things and um, that she struggled in school, she was bullied in school. Mm-hmm. Um, that, but she determined that the little thing, the, the, the little way, being an icon of love, loving as best you can in any situation, that's greatness 
So that's, mm-hmm. you don't get any more simple. It, it, when, I, when I reflected on her life and Francis, they're both towering figures because they both got to the root of discipleship, right? Because for both of them, particularly St. Therese, it was all about loving the Lord, and you love the Lord by, follow, by diminishing yourself and loving those around you. You know, I, I admire her. We always know people in our lives that annoy us. She purposely spent time with the sisters that annoyed her. Right. So she would yeah. be of help to them. Would you do that? Oh, I don't answer the question, but I mean, I mean, would our listeners do that? Seek out the I, people that really annoyed you or bullied you or made fun of you? Yeah. It's amazing. It's simple, right? It's simple. And she's practical. She's practical. This is a great thing. You know, one of the great, one of the great spiritual gifts of Therese is that and the Carmelites in general, but was she prayed for priests. Mm-hmm. Okay. And growing up, she idealized priests as those who, you know, would never sin. And Then she went to Rome. <laughs> Boy, did she discover what? That they're human. Yeah. There's some saintly ones, and there are some problematic ones, and there's some lukewarm ones, as they are among bishops. So that didn't discourage her, is that deepened her devotion to pray for priests, precisely right. because, of, and there was one in particular, whose name I forget now, who left uh, and married, which in her time would have been outrageous. And she prayed for him until her death. Wow. Right? Another interesting thing about Therese, um, we could talk more about her character in a sense, in, in a, in a sense, particularly her parents, but, you know, to have four relatives at one time, two of them being sisters, your own natural sisters, in the same convent, must have been quite the experience. Yeah. And not as easy as it sounds. I think when her two older sisters went into the Carmel, she missed them deeply. Oh my gosh. It was part of that emptying, right? But being there with them was always a temptation to, to draw ever closer or to spend more time with them than everyone else to, because they're your sisters and you love them. And so she had to distance herself, which was another level of suffering for her. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially, I think it was um, Pauline who became a second mother to her after mm-hmm. her her mother actually passed away when she was four. Mm-hmm. So to, to be there, like you said, Excellency, with her, but then to consciously separate, uh, that's, yeah, that's a big sacrifice. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. Um... Other things about her, remarkable, uh, to have both parents declared saints. And I think Pauline's cause is open now, too, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, wow, yeah, one of One of of her sisters, Mm -hmm. yeah. So to have your mother and father, I think it was Pope Francis who who, uh, canonized them, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, I, yeah. I can't remember, but yeah, it was it was very recent. So it yeah, twenty fifteen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I, <laughs> I used to say, well, if I had Saint Therese as my daughter, I'd be a saint too. But um, but she was actually, she was actually, she threw a lot of tantrums when she was young, and yes, who doesn't? Yes, of course. <laughs> yes, and she was super sensitive, right? Right. Super sensitive, almost um, overly nervous. So there was that episode where she was going into fits and they didn't know what it was. And therefore she was easily the target of being bullied and she was bullied a lot and she suffered Mm -hmm. a great deal because of it. Mm -hmm. But that also helped form who she was. Because that was part of the surrender that needed to that she needed to go through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's the uh, there's that 
big the story of that one Christmas where she felt that transformation, that interior transformation. She was going up the stairs after midnight mass and her dad was older and exhausted. And he said, boy, thank, thank goodness this is the last year I have to, to fill her shoes with the goodies for Christmas because she's getting too old for it. And she said that, um, you know, any time before that, she, that would have sent her into a, into a spiral. But mm-hmm. she went upstairs and she hung up her coat and... She didn't, and she felt an interior transformation, which really launched her, you know, directly on this path. Yeah, right. It it was it was the slow crucifixion of her desires, her attachments, even to her own sensibilities, that freed her to embrace the little way. Right, and to see her vocation as to love. Right? I mean, the death of her mother came as a huge blow to Therese and drew her very close to her father, who then also died before she died. So she lost both her parents. And part of that sensitivity that she had is that she, had, um, she was afflicted with scruples when she was younger. So she always was deathly afraid that she... Uh, committed sin, particularly mortal sin. Mm-hmm. And it took one of her confessors finally to convince her that, at least to his knowledge, to what he knew, that she did not commit mortal sin. Right. It gave her, it lessened her anxiety. But as right. a child, she got up 5.30 every morning, went to Mass every morning, did all her prayers, days of fast. I mean, really. Remarkable. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah. One of the stories from when she was uh, in the comment that really... I kind of try to remember a lot is that um, is when she w- had to re- uh, return the the communion grading key to the prioress and the prioress was mm-hmm. asleep and ill and so she was outside the door and she wanted to go in and another nun came and said no I'll do it I'll do it and they got into a little a little thing there in the hallway and ended up waking up the prioress which both of them were trying not to do and when the prioress came out and was like what is going on the other nun started to give an explanation that kind of made her, herself look right. And Therese decided to just leave the key and not explain her own side of the story and just walked away. She didn't need the last word. She didn't need to prove that she was right. She just said, mm-hmm. I'll let I'll let sister explain her side and, and leave it at that. Yeah. Again, it's self-forgetfulness is I think the best term to describe Therese. Forgetting self so that the Lord would be there for you. I mean, it's amazing. Um, and she would pray even for, for criminals. Like the famous criminal, again, whose name I don't remember now, who murdered yeah. three people, I believe. Right. right. And she prayed for him. And she ascribed it was to her prayers that right before he died, um, he kissed the crucifix three times. And... When she heard that, she was delighted because she believed that was her the prayers. Yeah. That, right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. You know, and she's called like the little flower, but really, she's really like the little warrior, isn't she, Excellency? I mean, she was she was relentless in in this little way. She would her audacity had her approach the Pope and say, "Let me into the con." You know, can can you get me into the convent at at, at such a young age? Um, and she's really spiritually. Therese's little way is a danger, isn't it, to anybody who uh, is lukewarm or, you know, not fervent? Yeah, uh, I would say it's the antidote. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, that's her sign. She sends roses, right, when she's present, Mm -hmm. when she answers prayers and stuff. But let's go to the two titles she took in religious life, of the child Jesus and the holy face. Okay, just like Francis in his own time, in his own way, Therese understood her desire to forget self, rooted in the gift of humility that Jesus demonstrated both in his birth and in his passion. And those are the two 
those are the two titles she chose. So if the child Jesus is because of the radical humility and poverty of Jesus born in Bethlehem, right? And the, the holy face is from Veronica. It's the veil that Veronica consoled the Lord with at the moment of his radical humility and self-emptying in the Passion. So in, she, she was imitating what the Lord did, self-emptying, self-forgetfulness, because that's what love does. Yeah. So that's a, a powerful antidote to anyone who is, has lost his or her way in holiness. Really, it's the, the littleness that is the key. So in a, in a world where we're all puffed up and we all think who the heck we are and we know everything better than the next guy and we're striving for this elusive uh, contentment with money and power, and, oh, please. Therese would have said, are you people for real? Yeah. you got to be kidding. <laughs> right. Because then what are you going to have in the end? In the end, what are you going to have? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, she, and, and uh, again, Excellency, when she, she asked for permission to be a novice forever so that she would always have to ask for permission to do things, she could never be elected to any important positions in the convent, that's exactly what you're talking about. Right. But in fact, that didn't happen, right? <laughs> she, she was professed. And I don't believe her father came to the profession. If I'm, no, he, could, he was too mm. ill. To okay. come. He, he died soon after, if I remember correctly. But... Um, yeah, that was the littleness that she wanted. Right? Uh, it, you know, we've said this before, you and I have said this before. When you look at the saints, they're living catechisms, aren't they? Right? They're applied holiness. You look at them and say, so this is what Christian life could look like. And whether you're a mendicant preacher, whether you are a member of a cloister, whether you're a mother or father raising children, this is the, these are the different faces of holiness. Yeah. But they have constants, right? They have constants. So yeah. it's almost like it's the, the kernel of the seed remains the same. Simplicity of life, radical humility, an abiding personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, literally imaging him, loving him, being, rela- being in relationship with him, yeah. which always leads you to the Eucharist, always, always leads you to the Eucharist. And then in that self-forgetfulness, being able to love your neighbor and all the gifts God gives, even the nature around us. Yeah. In whatever situation you find yourself in, do you know? Do you know much, uh, Excellency, about this young man uh, who was just uh, beatified, Blessed Carlo Acutis? Oh, Carlos Acutis! Um, he had a tremendous love for the Eucharist. Yeah, he's the first millennial, is he not? Beatified yeah, I that think we know so. of. Yeah, right. he had a tremendous love for the Eucharist. In fact, he, he he created a website that documented Eucharistic miracles, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah, um, and I, I, he died. Now let me think. He died. I forget what disease he died of. Was it? Was it? He had leukemia. Uh, leukemia. Yes. Right. And he was in terrible suffering, terrible, and he offered it up, right? Yeah. For for his own forgiveness, the sins and, the, and those around him. Right. But he was a normal guy in the sense of he had friends, he went out, he did this, he was on the internet, God help us all, he was on the internet, <laughs> and baptized it. Yeah. Made it a vehicle for evangelization. Again. Yeah. But again, it was all simplicity, right? It's prayer, simplicity, rootedness in Jesus. It's, this, it's the same formula, just lived in different ways. Yeah, and in the context of, of what his life had, you know, I, I saw that... Um, he also, uh, just with his friends, uh, with, when he had friends whose parents were divorcing, he worried about them, so he invited them over to his house to make sure they, you know, mm-hmm. felt loved. And um, I also saw that he, uh, he stuck, up, stuck up for um, some uh, classmates of his who were disabled and being bullied, mm-hmm. and he stuck up for them. And then, like you said, he, he, I love how you put it, he baptized the internet 
um, mm-hmm. just in the context mm-hmm. of his own life, you know, mm-hmm. in little ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, he, when he knew he was dying, he did not rebel against it. Hmm. Therese, when she developed tuberculosis, the first day she coughed up blood, she knew what that meant, and she knew what it would cause, and she did not rebel, right? She welcomed it. And the other interesting connection with St. Francis is she was buried on October 4th, which eventually right, is now the feast of St. Francis of Assisi. Interesting, no? I didn't make that connection. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. I think these two go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, so let's take one more quick break, Excellency, and when we come back, uh, uh, we'll have you answer a question. Sure. Why do we need Catholic radio? Because not everybody's sitting in front of a computer or watching their television set at home. How about when driving to work? How about while at work at your desk? Catholic Radio is there for you. I may be a Catholic priest, but I'm still a student of the faith. And Catholic Radio helps supply good material, whether it be a question and answer format show, whether it be a show itself on doctrine or theology. I myself, as a priest, am always learning. Welcome back, everybody, to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, we've got an interesting question this week. Um, And... uh, Okay, so this is, well, I'll just read the question. Uh, Bishop Frank, is lying always a sin? What about white lies? And what about lies in order to protect someone? Ooh. So growing up, we perfected white lies, didn't we, when we were kids? (laughs) Oh, sure. Uh, But it is actually a fairly um, complex uh, moral question complex in the sense of it has a layered understanding for us to be truly informed and to act appropriately. All right, so uh, lying is always a sin, period. It is, okay? It's a denial of the truth. And you cannot deny the truth, no matter what the cost. However, what some people claim as white lies is a, a very nuanced way of saying something that is qualified in such a way that you try to not offend the person by only giving a, perhaps a portion of the truth. Hmm. Right. The, the, the basic fundamental principle is the truth needs to be respected, but not everyone has a right to all the truth that I know. Mm-hmm. At times they do, and at times they don't. So these are some of the admonitions I would make. Right? Mama used to say, la più bella parola è quella che non è detta. The most beautiful word is the word that is the one not spoken. Hmm. So it is far more appropriate and acceptable to say nothing than to try to mangle a portion of the truth so that you don't offend someone, but you still have something to say. It it is not uh, inconsiderate to simply say, I really have no comment. That is respecting the truth. That is not lying. And you don't necessarily have to share what you know with someone if they don't have a right to know it. Right. Right? So, for example, many times people want to excuse themselves with white lies because they're in the midst of people talking about other people. Hmm. Right? Well, you simply say, I have no comment. I I, I don't care to comment about that. Now, if a person gets offended, they get offended. But... In my estimation, from what I understand, lying is a direct manipulation. It's a direct denial of the truth, right? And that is unacceptable. Yeah. It's unacceptable. There's that um, much used example of, 
you know, Nazi Germany and you're hiding uh, Jewish, uh, a Jewish family in your upstairs and the Nazis mm-hmm. come knocking on the door. Uh, how, how do you suggest someone would, um, you know, go through that scenario? Very complex. That's why I said it's multi-layered. Obviously, yeah. there's a hierarchy of good to protect a human life, right? It, it, there, there are very few higher goods to protect. Right. Um, and in that case, when you're not voluntarily putting yourself into it, where you do not have the means to get yourself out of it, and there's a hierarchy of goods to be protected, then you have to choose your words to respect the truth as best you can. Mm -hmm. without giving the information that the Nazi at the door does not have the right to know that you have people in your house. Right. Right? Yeah. And then the rest you leave to the mercy of God. But that is a very different example than, you know, I say a white lie because I don't want to offend my, I don't know, my nephew. Right. Well, then just don't comment. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Right? Yep. Yeah. See, part of, the, part of why this is a very important question to ask is because now we're in a world where everybody tells everything about everyone all the time. Right. So you go online and they tell me what I had for breakfast. I really don't care what you had for breakfast. No offense, <laughs> but I just, I just hope you enjoyed it. But I really, right? <laughs> so it's like, so every, and therefore you need to comment on everything. No, you don't. No, you don't. Yeah. yeah. La più bella parola è quella che non è detta. Better to say nothing. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you're listening and you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us. Um, you can send it in on the Veritas app, on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. You can find Bishop Frank Caggiano on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and Veritas Catholic Network is there too. Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that through the intercessions of St. Francis of Assisi and St. Therese of Lisieux, that we may be inspired to walk the little way, the simple way, the humble way of life, that we might be freed to love you above all things and to love our neighbor as ourselves, to walk a path of holiness so that we may, upon our judgment, be found worthy to enter into the glory of everlasting life which Francis and Therese enjoy with you. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Great, my friend, Steve, as as always, it's great to be with you. Thank you for this conversation about my two heroes. Yes. Thanks, Excellency. We will see you next week. Okay. All right. Take care.